If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> that was a little anticlimactic, was it? That's a little shorter than I thought we were going to get, uh, Matt, but uh, no problem there. Uh, good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. Man, did you stay up watching hockey last night? Oh, man. Uh, Carolina and Florida, four overtimes, seconds left in the, in the fourth overtime. And uh, boom, finally it happens. And uh, Florida takes uh, uh, game one, three, uh, two over Carolina. But man, that was, uh, that's like playing like two and a half hockey games, two and a quarter, two and a third hockey games. That's unbelievable when you think about it. Uh, forget the players. How hard's that in the fans? It was hilarious when they're zooming <laughs> into the stands and half the people are passed out. I'm not sure if that's because of the Bud Light or if that's got to do with, uh, you know, just staying up too late or what. But, uh, and, and, you know, lots of uh, hubbub today on social media. Gee, isn't there a better way to do it? Now, I don't know. <laughs> Is there a better way to do it? A shootout? I mean, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to tick somebody off, aren't you? Uh, anyway, uh, a long one, and everybody certainly got their uh, money's worth there. And, oh, yeah, on the uh, other hockey front, the Leafs general manager is out. Anybody surprised there? I guess at the end of the deal anyway. So uh, there you have it. Um, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But they're starting at the top. Leafs GM is out. And uh, all the press conferences are going on now. And I'm sure everybody will keep you abreast of what is going on there over the course of the afternoon. Also, the uh, Stellantis deal. Remember, this was the, uh, the EV battery plant in Windsor and was under construction. And all of a sudden, boop, everything stops because... Uh, the feds aren't living up to what they said they would. And it's interesting, they keep shoving it off to the province. And so Doug Ford has stepped up, but not once has Stellantis said anything about the province not honoring its agreement. It's the feds, they say. But boy, oh boy, Justin Trudeau is burning through the friends faster than you can shake a stick at. And uh, yeah, so anyway, Doug Ford said he's going to offer more. I don't know what that is, how much that is. Uh, that will all, of course, be secret. And we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. I know uh, Franco Terrazano of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation ain't too happy about that. Uh, but we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on the show. All right. What else we got? Oh, there's they discovered another planet. And it's um, it, it's it, Canadians. Canadian astronomers have discovered an Earth-like planet. It's only 90 light years away. So you might want to book your flight now. Uh, especially with, uh, oh, no, WestJet's back, so we're good. Although there is a there is a backlog over the long weekend, they say, as they get back ca- caught up. So you might want to wait till Monday before you book your flight to the Earth-like planet, which is 90 light years away. And it's covered in volcanoes. But I guess because of that, uh, there could be life, because everybody, everybody knows how much the volcano can flourish life. And, it, you, know, there's the, uh, you know, there's utopia for you. A planet covered in volcanoes. Uh, but no, with that becomes uh, water, ice, what have you, so uh, as it spews out the guts of its inside. So we can learn quite a bit about that, apparently. And we will, coming up a little later on this uh, this hour when we talk about that. Also, 
Uh, interesting piece in the National Post today about local media and uh, why we need to keep it abreast. And, you know, <laughs> I'm in for that. Why we need to keep it forefront. Forget about the breast. Uh, so we're going to talk about that and where that is going moving forward. Also, we talked about this the other day. And we, slowly, I guess, we're going to learn more about it. But we remember all the chatter about amalgamation. Now uh, dis- they're dissolving Peel. And Mississauga has been after this, I guess, for quite a while feeling that they're propping up uh, Bramp- uh, Brampton and, and Caledon. So this is, what does that do moving forward? What about other areas, other regions? They talked about York, Re- York Region. What about Kitchener-Waterloo? Is there an appetite for this? Is there an advantage to this uh, moving forward as we talk more about it? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, in the second hour, the federal government uh, giving up $200,000 in funding since 2020 to a Quebec charity that the RCMP suspects may be hosting a secret Chinese police station. Experts on foreign interference fear that the funding may have helped pro-Beijing uh, actors expand the Chinese Communist Party network in Canada, legitimizing it. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. And also on $10 a day daycare. How long does that last, especially with inflation? What does that get you? Anyway, Randall uh, Randall Denley of the National Post and the Ottawa Citizen has an interesting uh, account of the $10 a day care. And again, all sounds great, but are we getting bang for our buck? Is it the best way to do things? Uh, which, of course, we've chatted about in regard to the new uh, dental plan, which really isn't a plan. It just is really offering money out the door for anybody that wants it to spend however they wish, which is fine, but that is not fine if you agree with that. Uh, but that's not a dental plan. That's not a plan of any kind. That's just the redistribution of wealth. We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. And as I mentioned, uh, Stellantis uh, looking at the federal government to uh, honor its deal, what it said it would. And it says Ontario is and hasn't mentioned uh, the province not doing so. However, uh, Justin Trudeau and a lot of people uh, are you know, thinking that Ontario needs to pony up more. Doug Ford said he would. And, of course, that has the Canadian Taxpayers Federation a little cranky. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. So this is pretty cool as we talk about uh, heading off to the moon and beyond and such. Uh, and and we seem to have a, a renewed interest in discovery and, and vision and this sort of thing, especially as private companies like SpaceX and so on get involved with this uh, sort of industry. Um, and the great thing is, is, is we keep discovering, which is what uh, uh, humankind is all about. And Canadian astronomers have discovered an Earth-like planet 90 light years away, and it might be covered in volcanoes to boot. Uh, and to talk more about all of this is uh, one of the people and his team that discovered this planet. Yes, a Canadian. Bjorn Benik is with us, Associate Professor of Astrophysics, Head of Astronomy Group, Department of Physics at the University of Montreal, and with us now. Bjorn, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you for having me on. <laughs> so what do you say to someone in their team that uh, discovered a new planet? Congratulations. Um, how come it was your team that found it? Why now? Uh, give us a little bit of story here. Yeah, this is actually a, a pretty extraordinary planet. Um, so it was our team because we had the idea uh, to look specifically for planets around this star. Um, so there was actually a known, much larger planet uh, known around this star um, that was discovered by NASA's test mission. And back a few uh, back in 2020, we had this idea that 
that this telescope had not been sensitive enough to also found, find Earth-sized planets around that star. Oh. And so I reached out to the director uh, at that institute at NASA and said, we want to observe this star, particularly for five days straight, um, with a much more powerful telescope that was the Spitzer Space Telescope at the time. And well, they really liked the idea. And then they gave us the time. And we observed it. We found, of course, the larger planet that had previously been known. But in addition to that, we found a signature um, of a smaller planet, of an Earth-sized planet in the data. Um, I don't want to simplify this, Bjorn, but is this like fishing? It depends on where you look? It's just that vast? Um, so in some way, because there was already another planet going around that star that we knew yeah. of, this is a planet that is two, two and a half times bigger than the Earth, um, we thought that these planets, if there are other planets in that same system, they are actually nicely aligned in the same plane. So when you look, for example, the solar system, the planets are all in one plane. They all orbit the sun in the same way. And that we also expected for this star. So there was actually, it was not a random search, but we had the suspicion that there could be a planet mm. that is also in that same plane and it also passes in front of the star. So the way we find these planets is actually through the transit technique. That means that on the way around the star, once in every revolution, this, mm. the planet crosses in front of the star and casts a little shadow onto the star. And it's that signature of the planet when the star becomes slightly dimmer because there's a shadow, um, how we find planets. So there was a pretty good chance that if planets, if small planets existed around that star, that we would find one. And so we did. So with this planet, uh, say you, you say it's Earth-like, is, is this whole solar system or this group of planets that you have found, is it very similar to ours as well? So it's actually quite different. Um, so first of all, this star, um, so that sun basically in that right. planet system, um, is a tiny, tiny star. In fact, it's not much bigger than Jupiter, the, the planet in the solar system. Um, so it's a tiny, minuscule um, star that we call in, in uh, a, a red dwarf star. Um, and then the system is actually much more compact. So all of the planets are much closer in than our planets in the solar system. But the thing is, the, the star is also much dimmer. So it's not as mm. shiny as, as the sun. And so that combination of being closer to the star and having a star that is less bright, less warm, actually puts our planet in at the inner edge of what we call the, the habitable zone. So the temperature is actually quite right there. Um, so it's quite comparable to Earth. And that's that combination of closer in, closer to the light source, right. and having a, a fainter light source. And how Earth-like is this planet? I mean, I know that's been used to describe volcanoes and such there, but is that suggesting that there's ice, water, what have you? And so there are certain things that are really similar about this planet, about the Earth. So the, the sizes like the Earth, the masses approximately like the Earth, that, that means that it's composed of also a rocky planet. So that's actually quite similar to the Earth. Um, and also, as I said, the average temperature on this planet is quite similar. But then there are also some very important differences. And the first one is that this planet, in this very compact system, has actually one hemisphere that is always facing towards the star. So there's mm. one day side, that is, oh, there's always day, and then there is one night side that never sees the, uh, the star, that never sees its sun in that system. So there, there's one very dry and hot day side and one very cold night side. And we expect that on that night side, you could ex actually expect, expect a large glacier of ice that is condensing on that night side. 
And what is particularly interesting is the zone between those two hemispheres. That's what we call the terminator of the planet, uh, between the day side and the night side, because there, this this glacier would melt. You could even have liquid water potentially. Mm. And then all the way around the planet, everywhere on the planet, this planet is actually very, very active and uh, full of volcanoes. It's very geologically active. And so that's actually one of the most special things about this planet compared to any other exoplanets that we have found in the past, that this planet is very, very likely to be extremely, extremely volcanically active, much more than the Earth. So what happens now? Where do you take this now? Well, so, so far, we basically, we have this very, very strong suspicion that it's volcanically active. That we know because this other planet in the system is actually disturbing our planet's system, uh, our planet's movement around the, around the star. And it basically puts it into an elliptical orbit where the planet gets closer and less close to the star. So there's uh, actually a deformation that happens within the, within the planet. Um, so there are tidal forces, and those are heating up the inside of the planet. So this is a bit like when you take Play-Doh and you squish it and squeeze it for a long, long time, the Play-Doh will become warm. That is the same thing that happens here with this planet. The planet is squeezed and squished the whole time, and it becomes really warm on the inside. And so that there's even a magma, liquid magma on the inside that is then being transported to the surface as, or the heat is being transported to the surface as, as volcanic activity. So that is the reason why we have a very strong indication that there is volcanic activity. But what we want to do in the future with the James Webb Space Telescope, we actually want to look at the atmosphere of this planet and we want to see whether we can directly see the volcanic gases that are coming out of the, out of the, out of the planet. So, for example, on Earth, volcanoes are spilling out gases. It can be CO2, that is water vapor, and lots of sulfur species, sulfur molecules. And this is actually what makes volcanoes smell so much. When you are ever on a mountain that is volcanically right. active, you can actually smell this. So, with the James Webb Space Telescope, that's this new telescope that the NASA and uh, the Canadian Space Agency and the Europeans have built together, that telescope has the power to probe the atmosphere and see whether these gases exist there. That would be the ultimate truth, uh, ultimate proof mm. that there is a um, volcanic gas in the atmosphere. Bjorn Benik has been with us, Associate Professor, Astrophysics, Head of Astronomy Group, Department of Physics at the University of Montreal. His team and students have discovered an Earth-like planet 90 light years away. Exciting, Bjorn. Thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Interesting piece in the National Post highlighting uh, the emphasis, emphasizing the importance of marketers buying spots and ads in local media as opposed to focusing on the clicks of big national websites far and wide uh, is a trend changing. Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine. I hope you are as well, too. So far, so good, Jeff. Uh, we hear a lot, especially in a post-pandemic world and right in the middle of it, actually, uh, buy local, buy local. And, and people seem to respond to that, not only to support, but also found that there was a niche there that uh, was attractive to them in some way. Uh, has that hit media? Why hasn't it, if not? Wow, I saw that article and I was just astonished at how the pendulum is swinging in the other direction. Um, mm. You're probably too young to remember this, but uh, there was this thing called convergence about 20 years ago, 
where all media was going to be converged and digital was going to be the vehicle to do this and it was going to be more efficient and we were going to be able to talk to people from different backgrounds and cultures. And what happened is that convergence actually went to uh, have a negative impact on local media and local journalism, that there was this overlayer of national and 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 corporate uh, media presence. And what it did was it damaged the ability of newspapers and radio and television stations to serve the needs of their local audience. Um, I ended up going to the States for a few years in the late 90s, working at NPR. And when I got there, there were I was told there were 10,000 commercial radio stations in the United States. Within three years, that was down to fewer than 6,000 because the digital technology was able to um, basically homogenize media presences in various local areas. Um, so that if you were living in a mid-sized town in the Midwest, your local radio station was taken over and fed from a central point, maybe in Denver or St. Louis or Chicago, but it wasn't your local news and, and cultural station. And I think that what we're seeing now is a recognition that people find that to be really unacceptable. And the, if there's a move back to uh, empowering local media. I think this is a great thing, and it and it will only serve us in, in Canada and in the U.S. in a much better way than we've been served up to now. It seemed digital it just expanded our horizon, it allowed us to go beyond local media, allows us to go out into the world and find things that we never found before. But then, as you said, those are worldviews, those are national, international stories, those aren't local. Is it just taken this long for it to trickle down from, from, from that big picture to a, a local story? I think people, and I, I confess that I was one of the when I was at the CBC and at NPR, I was one of these uh, guys who said, oh, let's just, you know, give people uh, the same thing everywhere. And we made a big mistake, or certainly I did, uh, by ignoring or or cherry picking local news and information and basically making it more homogenous and more acceptable to a national audience. I think that was a failure of imagination. And I think the the issue that digital presented was, here's a way in which our businesses, wherever we were, can be more effective and, and more, uh, we can make more money by having, using fewer resources. Yeah, and I chasing don't think efficiencies. That, that really worked. Uh, chasing efficiencies as opposed to uh, audience. Now that there is that void, though, Jeff, I mean, a lot of small digital platforms have gone into that vacuum and, and, and sucked that up. That's right. And they're finding that the ability of those podcasts, that podcast culture to really connect with a local audience is not working as well as it was expected to. So I think that we're I think we're on the verge of seeing a reevaluation of what constitutes value in media. And I think the future is local. It's not network. 
Uh, it was funny. I was talking to somebody, uh, you know, and you hear this, oh, I don't listen to radio anymore. And I said, well, what do you listen to? I listen to podcasts. And then they listed a couple of podcasts and they said, well, you know, those are all news organizations that it's just, you know, what's changed here is the method of distribution, <laughs> not so much the content. Exactly. I'm speaking at a, at a, a conference called the Provocation Ideas Festival tomorrow at Innes College at the University of Toronto to talk about whether digital has been a success. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just trying to think how provocative mm. I can be. And I think one of the things that we're seeing now and that your listeners might be aware of is the fact that artificial intelligence, AI, is now seen as the great savior of all media. And in fact, what it is is basically it's old wine in, in new bottles, as they mm. say. And 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 a, and I'm seeing Articles here and there from uh, influencers of, of some sort saying that media organizations should grab onto AI because we're just coming out of COVID and we have to make the money that we lost during COVID. And AI is going to be able to do what digital claim to do, but even more efficiently. And I think this is mm. a real danger that that is lurking out there and we have to be aware of it. Where do you see this going in the short term, Jeff? Where do you see uh, media and local media in the short term? Oh boy! If I knew that, I I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't have to be on your show. I'd be wealthy and really retired. Um, I think what's what's happening is that media managers and big media managers are saying, "Let's look at AI and see if we can make back some money that we lost." Um, in the same way that. When digital began in the 90s, uh, media organizations said, this is great, we can do more with less, and we can do more with fewer resources, and we can do more with fewer people. And I think that that the audience, the public is understanding that this has really ill-served them in, mm -hmm. in profound ways. It hasn't been good for democracy. It hasn't been good for the culture. And I think we that before we embrace AI in any significant way, we have to look at it and say, what's the downside of it? And somebody quoted a, uh, uh, I saw an article on the internet, so it must be true. Um, someone <laughs> said that AI is like having your car stolen and chopped up into little bits and then reassembled and then sold back to you. It's still hmm. called theft. And in Jeffrey. this case, it's intellectual theft. And I think that that's the, that's the issue that we have to be aware of. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Fascinating discussion, Jeff. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too. My pleasure. We chatted earlier in the week uh, about the region appeal and them splitting up. I guess this is something that the city of Mississauga has been looking at since back in the Hazel McCallion days. Uh, it, it's 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 not easy to see if uh, if the mayor of Brampton uh, feels the same way or is excited about it. And it, it's kind of bizarre because. Uh, when you look at one, then do you start to look at others? And there were other, I guess, regions and municipalities they had mentioned. And uh, whether it's York Region or Kitchener, Waterloo, what have you. And uh, that's the reason we're going to get the mayor of Kitchener on the phone. Barry Verbanovic is with us, mayor of the city of Kitchener and here now. Barry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, yeah I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I guess when uh, we hear one region like this, everybody looks to the other. Have you been fielding a few calls on this? 
Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. You know, folks have been uh, folks have been talking about this, and I think you know it's important to say that uh, yesterday's announcement was um, really focused on Peel region, and uh, I congratulate my colleagues in in Peel on on getting the autonomy they uh, they've been looking for for some time, and uh, you know we'll see how all of the the, the rest of the regions unfold uh, going forward. Uh, so is this something that Kitchener would be interested in? Is uh, Are you just at this point sit back and watch and see how everything uh, pans out? What, what are your thoughts, Barry? Listen, um, it, it sounds like uh, I, I think that the, the, the province is certainly con- continuing to, to move ahead um, with respect to the facilitators. I think what I would say is that uh, our community is... Um, is really focused on uh, continuing to, you know, be, be the successful community that we want to be each and every day uh, with our staff and our council remaining focused on delivering the excellent services we are known for to the residents and businesses we serve and, um, and, and, and really delivering on the province's um, really delivering on the province's commitments uh, to the goal of 1.5 million homes uh, and also delivering on on growing the economy. Uh, What's the difference between what this exercise is all about, Barry, and say amalgamation of the old days? So, you know, listen, I mean, this is a word that's getting tossed around, you know, a lot by the media and certainly some in, in, in our community. I think, uh, you know, what it seems is, you know, and, and what we've seen by the transition of, um, in particular, planning issues from regional governments to local governments, this uh, this government is committed on supporting cities, uh, committed to, uh, you know, bringing in the, the, the strong mayor system and, and ensuring that cities have the governance and the, the tools that they need um, in order to support uh, achieving the goals of, of, of that 1.5 million homes uh, in the province and, and continuing to see the economy grow. And so I think they're more focused on, on that and, um, you know, the, the autonomy, respecting the autonomy of local governments as opposed to necessarily uh, amalgamating them. Uh, is this sort of a getting things done attitude? Uh, well, there's no question that, uh, you know, I don't think anybody would question uh, the province's commitment to, uh, to to getting things done. We've seen it in a number of areas. I mean, I just had Minister Clark here in Kitchener earlier today, along with the federal government, with some uh, housing announcements, which uh, which were fantastic and and really allow us to uh, to move forward in some of our our shared goals around uh, supportive and affordable housing. And what we want to do is, uh, is is really continue to work with them to, uh, to to get things done and to deliver on the the things that we know are our priorities for the uh, the residents and the businesses we all serve. Barry Vrabanovic is with us, Mayor for the City of Kitchener, uh, watching what happens with Peel as that is set to be dissolved in the next 19 months or so and how it is all done. Barry, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much. Appreciate uh, your time and uh, have a great long weekend. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've been talking a lot, um, and especially coming out of the pandemic, about various government services, whether it's dental or $10 a day uh, daycare or such, uh, health care, pharmacare. It's interesting what government decides to jump on board. I remember... I remember during the the healthcare issue, it's well, it's a provincial issue. Well, so is ten dollar a day day daycare and dental care, but it didn't stop the feds from going there. Uh, is the ten dollar a day care worth it? Is does it help all, or we're getting bang for the buck basically? Randall Denley is with us, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post. His latest uh, spending on childcare offers little bang for taxpayers' bucks. Modest labor force gains uh, gains will come at a great cost. Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks. So, uh, is this worth it or not, uh, Randall? I mean, it, 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 you know, it seems we have systems in place, and then when something like this comes in, it challenges the other systems that are already there. It does it work? Does it fit? Well, I don't think it's worth it because the amount of money that taxpayers pay for a pretty limited benefit is kind of stark. When you look at the numbers in the Financial Accountability Office report that came out this week, so over the first four years of this program, taxpayers are going to spend a little over $19 billion, take the cost of childcare down to $10 a day. That's a lot of money. So what do we get? Well, for somebody who's already in the licensed childcare system, this is great. Childcare costs go way down. But a goal of this program, one of its selling points is going to, supposed to be, that why it's going to liberate women from having to stay home and look after their children, they can get back into the workplace. And, you know, Ontario's desperate for workers. Oh, fantastic. Well, how many workers are we going to get out of this? Well, you know, over five years, they might get 50,000, or, you know, it could be even 98. It's hard to say. It all depends. What's the context on that? Well, in Ontario, we have 7.9 million people with jobs right now. So, 50, even 100,000 workers, I mean, is something. But is it something worth, over those four years, $20 billion. And, of course, as this program goes on each year, it costs more because they're phasing in the uh, the amount to take it down to $10, and, of course, they're expanding it to some degree. So it's going to cost, in the fifth year, $6 billion a year. Is it worth six billion dollars a year each and every year to, you know, maybe get fifty, eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand more workers? Uh, so it, it isn't to me. It's a, I think we're at the point now, Scott, where you know, the idea is that what well, we've got to buy jobs. You know, well, mm. you know, battery plants. We're going to buy jobs, and then we're buying workers. I just, I don't think it's worthwhile. It's great for the people who are getting it, but for society broadly, for the province. I don't see the benefit. So why does this work for those that are already in the system but not do enough to get more into the system? Well, here's the thing with it, right? Because if you're in the system now, you're already receiving a benefit. Mm-hmm. And you'll get down to $10. There's really two types of people in in child care, government-licensed child care as we go into this. One group 
has a subsidy. They're low income. The other group has an income high enough to say, well, yeah, it's kind of expensive, but we can afford it. Those are the people who are in the system now. So all these people, about 300,000 now, will get the child care brought down to $10. That doesn't generate one more worker. It doesn't change anything except give a discount to people already in childcare. So you get the gain by adding spaces. And the government's shooting for a little over 80,000 additional spaces. But that still leaves more than 200,000 people who are not going to get benefits from this program. So it's, it's one of these entitlement programs that it sounds great. We all pay taxes. You know, we think, well, all families should be eligible, right? Well, they're eligible, yes. But, of course, you know, like every other government program, well, there's not enough supply. So, you know, maybe half the people will get it. Maybe half the people won't. Great for the half that gets it. Kind of unfair for the half that doesn't. And it's not like, say, well, we'll put you on a waiting list. Well, okay, well, how will that, long will that take? Years. Okay, well, my kid will be in kindergarten by then. Hmm. So it, it's, I think, an unfair thing for government to say, hey, we're offering this program, knowing that they can't deliver it. Uh, would the money eligible. Would the money be better spent on creating more spaces as opposed to what this really seems to be is about getting votes? Would it, the money be better spent on creating those spaces? Yeah, I mean, that that's the problem that they have is that there, there aren't enough spaces. Although, you know, that said, when this is looked at, typically they only look at the spaces in licensed government child care centers, which is the most expensive kind of child care you can get. A lot of other people get child care in an informal system. You know, a friend, a relative, somebody down the street looks after their children. Maybe they'd like something else. Maybe they're happy with it. But if we're going to go to a system where Every child is looked after in some structure we have to build by government and employees. It's going to be awesomely expensive. And the other hitch in all this is that when they talk about expanding the system, they're already short early childhood educators. So the government's already admitted, well, we've got to pay them more. So maybe that'll draw more people in or keep the ones we've got. Maybe it will, but you can't look at expanding and expanding a system on the scale that they want to deliver that unless you've got the people. And there's really nothing to say now that they've got the people to do it. So that's one of the caveats that was pointed out in this financial accountability office report that, you know, if you're going to get these women uh, returning to the workforce in the numbers that they hope to get small though they are, well, that's only if, you know, we can actually get people, to staff these child care centers and, and make these spaces operational. So that's a big unknown at this point. But they're going to spend an awful lot of money, whether it does anything or not. Uh, how should uh, this be better handled, in your opinion? We've only got a few seconds left. I mean, is this something that um, the government is better left to private industry or perhaps give them incentive to create more spaces? I think there are more on the right track to begin with, Scott, whether subsidizing child care for people with low incomes. If you have a, immediate, a median or higher income, do you really need subsidization because you're already getting uh, cash payments from the federal government? 
tax breaks from the feds, tax breaks from the province. All those were at one time said to be for childcare. So we've adopted the idea that, well, you have a child, you shouldn't have to pay for that. Everybody else will pay for it. That's not something I would expect a conservative government to really push, but I guess the federal money was irresistible. There you go. Uh, Randall Denley with us from the Ottawa Citizen and National Post. Spending on child care offers little bang for taxpayers' box. Randall, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great long weekend. You too, Scott. Thanks a lot. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know about the big VW deal and the government incentives there. Uh, now fast forward to DeSantis, which uh, DeSantis, who have a plant being built in the Windsor area, battery plant, it has stopped construction this week because apparently the government isn't living up to its end of the deal, which was obviously to make whole uh Stellantis after the VW deal went through um so then the federal government starts uh throwing it down to the provincial government uh, well maybe you should contribute more although at no point did uh, I read Stellantis ever saying this had anything to do with the Ontario government not living up to its end of the bargain it was the federal government who was not living up to the end uh their end of the uh, deal that being said Ontario Premier Doug Ford at a news conference suggested that it is, meaning Ontario, prepared to give additional funds after the automaker threatened to threat down, uh, shut down construction of the Windsor plant from moving forward. Let's bring in Jay Goldberg, Ontario and interim Atlantic director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. They're not happy about it. Jay is with us now. Jay, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be with you. So, Jay, is this involving the feds or the provinces? And I guess at the end of the day, it's our, it's our money, so what difference does it make? But it, in anything that I've seen from Stellantis, they don't mention the province. They mention the feds that aren't living up to their deal. No, they don't mention the province. And, in fact, the province contributed $500 million towards the Volkswagen deal, and that's exactly what they said they were going to contribute to the Stellantis deal. Uh, essentially, uh, what the difference is is that the federal government decided to give taxpayer-funded subsidies to Volkswagen uh, for production for the next 10 years, which is not something that was originally offered to Stellantis. And so now Stellantis uh, wants some extra money to cover that, and uh, the feds are trying to kick it down to the province. The bottom line is, when you hand out this kind of corporate welfare to one auto company like Volkswagen, when you agree the federal government does to subsidize production for a decade, of course, auto companies all over the province are going to come to you and want uh, more money. And so it's not a surprise that Stellantis is doing that. And in fact, I think we're going to see car companies into the future uh, with other plants and electric car battery plants, uh, other manufacturing plants. They're all going to start coming to the government expecting subsidizing production, just like Volkswagen receives. Is there anything new here, Jay, though? This has been going on forever, has it not? Well, in one sense, it has, but in one sense, it hasn't. So traditionally, governments have handed out corporate welfare to help with the construction of a plant. So that's what the Ontario government did, for example, with Volkswagen. That's what the original deal was with Stellantis. What's new is that the government, the federal government, through the Volkswagen deal, is offering to subsidize production for 10 years. And that's never been done here uh, in Ontario or with other auto companies. Certainly, there's been help. Uh, for building facilities, but we've never offered subsidized production in the way that the federal government has agreed to with Volkswagen. So in, in one sense, it's similar. In another, it's unprecedented. 
And I think it's going to set up the game for going forward. All kinds of other companies are going to want their production subsidized as well. So if Stellantis didn't point to the province saying they're upholding their end of the deal, it's the feds that aren't, why does the premier think that it's up to the province to top it up? Does this just look good when uh, Justin Trudeau's kicking it down the can, uh, kicking it down the road to him? Yeah, uh, frankly, I, I'm surprised that the federal government is uh, looking to the province because the Florida government thus far has done the same thing with Stellantis as they did mm. with Volkswagen. It's the feds that said they would subsidize production for Volkswagen, so you would think that's what you would get here with Stellantis as well. Uh, I suppose maybe because the feds contributed $13.5 billion to Volkswagen and uh, Ontario only did $500 million, that they're thinking that there needs to be some kind of balancing out, but frankly, uh, Premier Ford shouldn't be accepting that. He should be holding firm. We've already given $500 million here in Ontario, and if the feds want to keep subsidizing production, they you know, would go ahead and do so. But I, I don't think Ford should be uh, committing our money. And again, it's going to set a precedent that the Ontario government is willing to subsidize production, and that other deals down the line, companies are going to point to this and say, we want more too. So it's not so much the help that they're giving to get them here, to incentivize them to come here. It's the fact that during production, they keep giving. All It doesn't stop. Exactly. And I mean, you know, it's one thing to try to get jobs here. And again, I think that the more sensible way to do this is to lower corporate taxes to make sure we have a more competitive business environment so you can attract businesses of small, medium, and large size and not just cherry pick certain auto companies you want to come mm. here. But Beyond that, if you look, if you're looking to, you know, give them some money to construct the plant, that's traditionally what the corporate welfare has been. The new thing is, you know, essentially helping them pay for the production of cars for 10 years, or car batteries for 10 years. It's unprecedented, and, and it's a massive commitment that the feds have done for Volkswagen on behalf of the taxpayers, $13.5 billion. That's more than a billion dollars a year that they're going to hand over to Volkswagen. So. We'll see what happens with Stellantis. And again, you're going to see other companies come as well. Uh, are, are you surprised they don't uh, put this across the board and offer those tax breaks to all companies to get a wide variety of things as opposed to cherry picking, as you've said? Yeah, I mean, frankly, it just points to the lack of a competitive business environment we have in Ontario. Yeah. If you have to give car companies billions and billions of dollars to come here and have their plans here, that just indicates that your environment is simply not competitive. And so what mm. they should be looking at is lowering corporate taxes, lowering hydro costs, and attract businesses of all sizes. And frankly, they're just handing out billions of dollars to rich Fortune 500 auto companies. Stellantis had profits well over $20 billion last year, so they're not hurting for cash. And, you know, it's the small and medium-sized businesses that don't get these special agreements with governments that are losing out. Jay Goldberg with us, Ontario and Interim Atlantic Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, calling on the Premier not to give any more additional corporate money to Stellantis, uh, saying they've already uh, held up their end of the bargain. Jay, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Same to you. This pit of mud, this swamp, just seems to be getting deeper with every passing day. And according to reporting in the Globe and Mail, CSIS uh, sought uh, sought an electronic and entry warrant to monitor uh, former Ontario Cabinet Minister Michael Chan in the lead-up to the 2021 federal election. But it took several months 
for then public safety minister Bill Blair to sign off on this surveillance. Um, and, and, and nobody is, or everybody's asking questions now as to why and what this later, uh, latest information means moving forward. Also, uh, a story on federal government giving $200,000 in funding to a Quebec charity that the RCMP suspects may be hosting a secret Chinese police station. It's amazing how when this information breaks in the United States that the FBI is on it right away and there's arrests made, we're still dithering and trying to figure out what's going on. And, well, I, I frankly really don't know what we're doing when it comes to this. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, and with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I hope you are as well. Thank you. So what what are you to make of this latest information about the delay with Bill Blair to sign off on surveilling any of this? Well, I actually think that uh, there's an argument to be made that Bill Blair shouldn't have been taking part in this decision. The ethics commissioner has uh, the, the one that just resigned recently, uh, Mario Dion. He thankfully expanded the scope of the act the previous commissioner had said, oh, it only applies to uh, financial interests. It doesn't apply to to uh, personal interests, political interests. And he said, well, no, there's nothing in the act that limits it to just financial interests. It also covers political, social, personal interests. And so no one from a party should be making decisions about search warrants for some, for someone else in that party. I mean, that's a political conflict of interest and it just doesn't work. It, it, it smells. And I think there's a case to be made that Bill Blair should have recused himself from making that decision because it was a decision about uh, another person active in the Liberal Party of Canada. Um, why do you think this was delayed in some way? I think it's appears because it was involving someone involved uh, who was involved in the Liberal Party of Canada. And yeah. Bill Blair's a Liberal cabinet minister. And that's this all you need. Uh, that appearance uh, of the conflict of interest is, is enough for him to have been required to step aside and say, I can't take part in this because there's this political conflict of interest. Uh, deeper and deeper we go. Uh, what does that mean uh, regarding the inf- uh, regarding uh, David Johnston and a public inquiry? Does this change anything? It just seems that all of this is coming out before this decision is made and his announcement, whether there's a public inquiry or not. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a layer cake of conflicts of interest. David Johnston shouldn't be looking into this. He's an old friend of the, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau who handpicked him for this job. He shouldn't have taken it. Trudeau violated the Conflict of Interest Act by handing him a government contract. David Johnston, as a ministerial advisor, is also violating the Conflict of Interest Act by ruling on, on his friend's actions, his friend Justin Trudeau. I mean, it just goes on and on. Conflict of interest after conflict of interest. And we need a, an independently chosen commissioner. That means the Trudeau liberals do not get to choose the inquiry commissioner or commissioners, sometimes inquiries have more than one commissioner. It has to be an all-party decision so that they all cancel each other out and we get someone uh, or a group of commissioners who are impartial and not tied to any one party and will finally look at all of this that's going on. We, we, we don't need to wait, though, for that commission to change the laws in key ways to stop 
and close all the loopholes that allow for foreign interference. There's loopholes in the lobbying law, the ethics law, the uh, elections law, political donations law that make all of the stuff easy to do in secret. The and prime minister. So the prime we, 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 we don't need a study. We know mm. what the loopholes are. They were, they were discovered. Democracy Watch has been talking about them for 20 years and, and uh, no party has acted to close them because they all are quite happy to have big wealthy interests, even foreign interests influence them as long as it helps them win elections. Uh, the prime minister talking about uh, filling the seats with four by-elections coming up. How can we have elections before we really settle this? I mean, and have confidence in what's going on. Well, the loopholes are known. So we can and should be changing the uh, elections law, lobbying law, uh, donations law, ethics rules to stop this. Just to give you one example, right now it's legal for an interest group even a foreign-sponsored interest group, to secretly spend as much money as they want with no disclosure, no limit, supporting someone to win the nomination in a riding or supporting a, a party leadership contestant that's trying to become the leader of one of our federal political parties. I mean, that's just a gigantic loophole with no disclosure, no tracking, no limits. You would never even know whether a foreign-sponsored, foreign government-sponsored group was pushing one of these candidates and they can spend an unlimited amount of money doing it in secret. We don't need a Royal uh, 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 inquiry commissioner mm. to tell us, close that loophole. Pierre so Pauly, ever, sorry, we go ahead. close all the loopholes, have the inquiry go on to find out what the prime minister knew, what the Trudeau cabinet knew and when they knew it and what they did about it. But in terms of closing the loopholes, we do not need one study done. We just need to close the loopholes. They're well known. They've been known for decades. Pierre Polyevre says he won't participate with the special rapporteur, David Johnston, for the reasons you just mentioned. It's a huge conflict of interest. It lends credibility to something he doesn't believe has any. What are your thoughts? No, no, this guy should not be doing the job. David Johnston is an old family friend of Justin Trudeau. He cannot be judging the Trudeau government, Trudeau, anyone in the, in the government. He's in a conflict of interest. He is violating the Conflict of Interest Act right now by what he's doing and, and, and everything he does right through an, on his uh, 1400 to $1,600 a day contract uh, uh, right through to October. He should stop now. And Democracy Watch will be, we've already filed a complaint against Trudeau for handing his friend David Johnston a contract. It's a clear violation of the conflict in Shack. And we'll be filing a complaint against David Johnston as well for, doing the work. He can't be doing it. It's it's a violation of our federal ethics law. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, with an update. Duff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great long weekend. Thank you. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Earlier on in the week, we were talking about Peel Region and uh, involving the town, the city of Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon, and how they are going to dissolve Peel over the uh, next 19 months. And Mississauga has been something they've been looking at for an awfully long time. It's odd to see how everybody's reacting to this, and I guess the devil is in the details. Uh, to talk more about it, Peter Grape is with us, uh, professor of political science at McMaster University, and with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. 
So far, so good, Peter. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, it, it, it's, it's People are playing their cards pretty close to their chest. Some say they want it, others a little unsure. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's not clear really what we're going to get out of this, you know, yeah. from the point of view of uh, Ontarians. Uh, I suspect we'll be uh, paying part of the transition costs of uh, of this disamalgamation. Uh, and so the question is, what you know, what's what's the benefit that comes out of it? I think from the point of view of the Premier, uh, removing a level of approvals for development is going to speed up uh, you know, further development, particularly in Brampton and later in Caledon, uh, and uh, contribute to the the goal of building more housing. Um, again, we have to wait and see whether that happens or whether it's two or three years of trying to sort out this disamalgamation, if you like, and uh, whether ultimately uh, Mississauga being off the hook for uh, paying for some of those uh, development charges through the region will, in fact, slow development in places like Brampton and Caledon, where they'll now have to you know, foot the bill entirely uh, at the level of those cities to to build roads and sewers and so on to, to service development. So, uh, you know, the benefit, I would say, uh, is probably from the, the point of view of the Premier and his promises is faster development, whether that actually is produced. It's not sure. In the meantime, we're probably going to pay uh, some of the price of splitting up these places and, you know, developing, you know, separate police forces and fire, fire, fire forces and, uh, splitting up, uh, you know, social services departments and so on. Um, as this progressed over the course of the week, I- I'm thinking to myself, is this D or dis amalgamation as you spoke of? I talked to the mayor of Kitchener a little earlier on and said, yeah, that's the word, the phrase that's coming out, but that's not. Da, 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 da. Is that what it is, Peter? Is, are, is this just a step back? I mean, I guess it's a bit different because the arrangements are different. But is this basically dis amalgamation, as you called it? Well, I mean, I was exaggerating a little. I mean, these, these yeah. cities already exist as cities, but, you know, a number of things that, you know, places like Toronto or Hamilton or Ottawa, uh, you know, do at the level of the city, such as, you know, providing, you know, municipal long-term care facilities, fire services, police services, you know, a lot of planning. Uh, that stuff was being done at the level of Peel region rather than in the cities themselves. So, I mean, those cities existed. Uh, already, but a number of the important functions of municipalities were being done in common. And, and the, you know, the argument for doing that was to prevent these cities from competing with each other and, you know, building uh, things in a manner that wasn't really that good for the overall development of the area. So, I mean, the logic of regional government was that. Uh, the argument of the government at the moment is that, uh, you know, particularly Brampton and Mississauga are now large places they have the capacity to take these things on, and presumably there's a confidence that they won't uh, engage in, in forms of competition that you know are ultimately a bit uh, counterproductive in terms of the orderly development of uh, roads and neighborhoods uh, and services in those areas. Is this more about planning and speeding up that process than it is the implementation of services? From what I understand, that is going to start is going to stay the same in the sense that it will be kept in in the most efficient model. This is more about planning and and, and getting things done. Is that accurate? I mean, again, we have to see what the actual yeah. actual result is of of them pulling it apart. I mean, you know, maybe they will keep you know common. Uh, you know, protective services around, you know, police and fire and so on, or maybe they won't. Uh, to what extent are the social services going to be, uh, you know, pulled apart? I mean, presumably Brampton isn't going to set up its own water filtration and sewage mm-hmm. plants, but they'll, you know, come with some kind of agreement uh, with with Mississauga. 
So, I mean, I think from the point of view of the premier, uh, the main argument will be that, yeah, we'll enable faster development because you don't need uh, approvals at both the city level and then the uh, the regional level. Uh, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, the main uh, benefit. There may be other benefits in terms of, you know, thinking that the people in, in Mississauga will be particularly pleased to no longer be in the region and that uh, may help uh, the premier uh, politically or it may be a, a calculation that if Bonnie Crombie gets his Christmas gift, she'll continue as mayor of Mississauga and not run for the liberal leadership, which might hmm. also be part of the calculation. But I don't think that's as central uh, as this idea that you know, we were expecting a lot more development in the uh, Brampton and Caledon areas. And, and maybe this is a way of reducing uh, the number of steps that uh, development proposals have to go through. Do you think this will be the first domino to fall, that it will happen in other regions? They're talking about York. As I mentioned, I was talking to the mayor of Kitchener earlier on today. He didn't seem to rule it out. Um, he, he was, uh, well, he was noncommittal on it. It, it, it didn't sound like he, he wouldn't like it, though. Yeah, although, I mean, you know, there's many, uh, in, you know, in, in the water, the Kitchener-Waterloo area who are saying that they don't want to go down this road, but you know, as, as part of the announcement this week, and, and, and we knew this was coming, you know, the remaining regional municipalities, uh, you know, including the one in the Niagara Peninsula, uh, are going to be, uh, be be reviewed ultimately to see whether that's the best form or whether, you know, either creating amalgamated cities or, you know, allowing for the creation of separate cities makes sense. Uh, in a way, Peel region with sort of the three big centers, well, two big centers and a the sort of smaller one of Caledon is maybe a more logical one for pulling apart than, say, Kitchener-Waterloo, where you have four smaller communities, you know, beyond Cambridge, Kitchener and uh, Waterloo. And, you know, what happens to West Dumfries and so on in, in, a, in a dis, mm. uh, some kind of removal of the regional level it might be a bit complicated. So. You know, there's reasons why we might expect uh, kind of a slower move to those places, particularly as Kitchener-Waterloo seems to be working well. And it's, you know, some ways from being the development frontier uh, of Toronto in the way that, you know, Brampton uh, is at the moment. You know, the Niagara Peninsula may be uh, one where we're more likely to see some kind of movement, as, you know, the Premier has already noted that he thinks there's too many politicians for the, the population down there, which is maybe an indication that you'd like to see some movement. Uh, either to some sort of greater amalgamation of, of the existing municipalities down there or some other uh, form of, of municipal organization. Any reason to think that this would involve Hamilton in any way in the future? I mean, it's hard to see. Uh, I don't know if there's some sort of move to to do something in Niagara. Who knows if, you know, Grimsby uh, becomes, mm. you know, gets falls into the sights of the greater Hamilton uh, people or what mm. have you. but. Uh, wow. You know, it's hard to see <laughs> Hamilton really, you know, figuring in this. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe the few people who who feel Hamilton should be disamalgamated will hope that this is a sign that that's possible again. But that really doesn't seem to be uh, in in the cards, as far as I can read from these moves. Peter Graff with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about the divorce appeal and what it means for other regions. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. And you too. Today, the Northwall Riders Association, a Hamilton-based motorcycle club, provided a repatriation ceremony for Cole Zelenko, a Canadian who died in Ukraine in April. Zelenko was on his second tour volunteering as a fighter with Ukrainian forces serving with Ukraine's International Legion. Unlike a Canadian forces soldier who dies in battle, Zelenko uh, would not have a a repatriation ceremony along the Highway of Heroes. So the Northwall Riders Association 
Association stepped up and made that happen. To talk more about this, Kevin Ellis is with us, president of the Northwell Riders Association Motorcycle Group, and here now. Kevin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? Thanks for having us on. So far, so good. Thanks for taking the time, Kevin. Tell us about your motorcycle group. Well, we are an association uh, of made up of just regular uh, Canadian citizens that uh, are grateful for our freedom and ones that, uh, you know, we want to, you know, show patriots of our country that, uh, you know, that they're not forgotten. So we stand up for, you know, Canadian military, uh, active, retired. Um, we also stand up with the legions and help them and uh, cadet corps and, uh, you know, families of the fallen. So what happened today? How did you get involved with this, Kevin? Well, as soon as I heard that uh, Cole had uh, lost his license service um, to the Ukrainian forces uh, and he was coming back to Canada, I knew that because he wasn't uh, active with the Canadian military at this time, uh, that there would be no repatriation. So I took it upon myself to uh, head the social media and seek out uh, his family and I was able to find his mother and I contacted her and just let her know, you know, who I was, the organization that I was with and offered our support in any way we could, whether it be, um, you know, just giving her some people to talk to or, you know, taking her whatever she needs. And I also mentioned at the same time that uh, we would be uh, honored if we were able to uh, escort uh, him home uh, with the motorcycle motorcade, and she approved that, and uh, she was with us today. What was the reaction when you you suggested this to her? She was uh, shocked, uh, overwhelmed. Uh, she was quite surprised. She didn't uh, wasn't expecting anything uh, from anyone to be um, you know to step up and say listen, you know, uh, we want to recognize your son's service, recognize his heroism, um, you know, for going over and, and defending the people of the Ukraine and losing his life. She kind of thought that, you know, her son was just going to come home with, uh, without any fanfare. And, uh, you know, so she was quite, quite pleased and moved at the fact that uh, you know, the members of the Northwall Riders Association and Hamilton's Green Knight Another military support group within Hamilton stepped up and offered to to bring her son home. So, what was this like for you today? Describe it. It, uh, you know, I've done many of them uh, over the years. Unfortunately, uh, we escorted approximately fifty Canadian Forces soldiers' remains back and repatriated them back to Canada, um, and. It never gets easy. The uh, you know seeing the people on the overpasses with the flags, uh, it has a great sense of pride to it um, when you see them, the people on the bridges. But it's also heart wrenching because it seems to bring uh, a real a realism to everything. It, it shows that there are Canadians that appreciate you know young men and women uh, stepping up and and defending, let's say the weak. I mean you know people, there's always someone that needs help. And there's always someone that comes forward, but it's not everyone that comes forward. And so those that do do it, you have to recognize them. And for me um, and my crew, you know, when you get there and you meet the families and you put, you know, uh, faces to names, um, it's tough. And then when they break down uh, and, you know, when they when they first see their, their loved ones come home um, and, you know, 
we all, you can't help but get emotional at that time. It becomes so real for us. Um, for that moment in time, uh, you almost feel as if you, you know, you're feeling exactly what they're feeling at that moment. And uh, it's heart wrenching, but it's important work. How many were involved with this? How many were, were riders were there today? I, I believe there was 30 of us in total. It was, it was right mm. around the 30 mark. Uh, to be honest, I, I didn't take a head count, but I know that, um, you know, there was about 30 bikes in total. All right, Kevin. Well, thanks very much for sharing the story with us, and thanks very much for doing your part and uh, giving uh, all of these soldiers what they deserve when they arrive home. Kudos to you. Uh, congratulations, and uh, please pass that on to the rest of the association. I will. Thank you so much for the time. God bless. Kevin Ellis with us, president of the Northwall Riders Association Motorcycle Group. Uh, they provided a repatriation ceremony for Kol Zelenko, a Canadian soldier who died in Ukraine in April on his second tour, volunteering with a fighter as a fighter with Ukrainian forces, serving with Ukrainians International Legion, and of course uh, taking him from the airport back to his home in St. Catharines. Uh, another incredible story coming out of that terrible Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that is it for us. Thank you for listening. As always, we greatly appreciate it. We go to James on the email for the last word. He keeps it short and sweet. He said, happy long weekend. Happy May long weekend to everybody. And don't forget... You're going to need more buns for all those wieners. Have a great weekend.